Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, the population time bomb. The idea that an aging population is making it harder and harder to fund pensions and social and health care as the number of older people grow in proportion to the working population. We'll hear why some think the danger might be overblown. We all know that life expectancy has improved, so the elderly are a lot more healthy than they were before. What also has changed is, is the, uh, the denominators, the working age population. But first, Tiago Villanueva, the BMJ's current editorial registrar, talks to Michael Kidd, current president of Wonka, that's the World Organization of Family Doctors. Good afternoon, Professor Michael Kidd. Many thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tiago. Um, Family medicine around the world seems to be going through a crisis. For example, in countries like the UK or the USA, many, many GPs are demoralized and suffering very high levels of stress and saying they intend to quit direct patient care. So what is failing in general practice and what needs to be addressed? Well, it's certainly true that uh, that there is an issue around morale. Um, But that is not just in general practice. I mean, you see this among many health professionals. And uh, and so I don't think it's peculiar to general practice. I think it's something which occurs, uh, affects many health professionals. And partly it's related to uh, the, uh, the, the working conditions that people work under. Partly it's related to the relentless change which occurs in healthcare. Now change can be very good, especially if we're improving healthcare um, delivery and our knowledge about different disease. But change can also be quite wearing, especially if a lot of it seems to be extremely bureaucratic and related to red tape rather than direct uh, patient care. Uh, I think it's really important as doctors, not just as GPs, as doctors, that we focus on our own resilience and we look at how can we strengthen our own resilience and look after ourselves and look after our colleagues so that we are able to continue to do the really uh, important work that we do and continue to make the great contributions we make to our communities. And, uh, And I don't think we focused enough on that. Uh, in the past, and uh, and I think it's actually this. There's a whole movement looking at resilience amongst uh, health professionals that uh, that I think needs to be ingrained in our medical uh, education systems, ingrained in the work of our. Uh, you know, the British Medical Association and the Royal College of GPs and all the specialty colleges uh, in this country so that people don't become burnt out, so people are looked after. I think there's also an issue around uh, looking at the diversity of work which people do as well. Uh, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of people spend some of their time working full-time in clinical practice and developing up their skills and becoming great diagnosticians. And then as they reach a point later in their career, they may branch out and they may spend part of their week um, doing something else. They may get involved in some academic work and do some research. They may get more involved in doing some teaching as well as clinical practice. They may get involved in medical leadership roles with um, their local organisations, with local health organisations, health authorities and so forth. Uh, or they may branch out and do something completely different for part of their part of their week as well, and uh, and that's okay. But what we don't want to do is lose great and experienced clinicians from our health system. That leads that leads me directly to my next question: It is what is the key to attract top talent into general practice? For instance, should we be more concerned about improving medical students' undergraduate experience of general practice? Should medical school curriculums become less hospital centric? 
Absolutely, yes and yes. So, look, I, I think that we need to look at how do we attract the brightest and the best of our medical graduates to work in general practice. And this starts at medical school. And it's really important that every medical student gets experience in general practice and that they get a really fantastic experience working with great role models as GPs. It's also really important that the uh, that there is an adequate amount of, of time in medical school training spent in the community so students actually understand about community-based healthcare, which is where most healthcare in this country takes place. It doesn't take place in hospitals. Uh, the majority of healthcare is taking place out in the community. And yet uh, the majority of medical education seems to occur in most universities, uh, in most university medical schools, in teaching hospitals. So we're, we've got a very skewed medical education system and, uh, and that needs to change. Now, fortunately, there are a large number of medical schools around the world which have looked very seriously at their curriculum and looked very seriously at where the students are training and have dramatically increased the amount of community-based uh, training. We also need to look at uh, what happens after graduation. You know, we can give students fantastic experience in general practice as medical students, then that can be totally wiped out by the negative attitudes towards general practice that students, that graduates may encounter as interns and, uh, and as residents. And uh, often with you know, really prejudiced views coming from specialists who have very little insight or understanding about how general practice works and about the important work that their colleagues are doing in general practice. And I think it's, I think, you know, we need to stand up and say when people are saying derogatory things about other branches of our profession, um, that's not right. You know, you need to go out and educate yourself. You need to f find out what's really happening. And now, going back to the clinical work of GPs, do you think GPs should be responsible for providing full continuity of care for the patients, including out-of-hours care? Is this realistic in the 21st century? Uh, it, it, again, it depends on the communities where people are based. So in more remote areas of the country, it may be essential that the GP provides 24-hour care, or at least the local general practice provides 24-hour care. It may not be the individual uh, doctor being on all the time. Um, but uh, in, in other parts of the, the country, that 24-hour that access may not be uh, as necessary. People do need access to care over 24-7, uh, but uh, that can be provided in different ways. And, you know, in this country, you've introduced uh, the telephone-based um, health advisory uh, systems you've uh, you've introduced other ways of providing after hours access so i think we need to uh, to look at uh, at what the needs are and uh, and then provide that over time I, um, there's been a lot of discussion concerning the need to rethink the skills mix of the healthcare workforce in the developed world. Do you think many of the current tasks of GPs should be carried out by other healthcare professionals and should in turn GPs undertake some of the tasks of hospital doctors uh, yes and yes. So uh, no, I'm, I'm a great fan of team-based care. I think that, um, that we are seeing in many parts of the world a move away from the solo doctor working on, on her own or, or on his own um, without any access uh, to other health professionals and without any great support. And that's a real recipe for burnout. And I don't think it necessarily provides um, the best quality care that a team-based approach 
can provide uh, to patients and communities. So I am a, I'm a fan of, of people looking at, um, at new models of care. Uh, in the, the US, they call it the patient-centred medical home. Uh, in, uh, in the UK, I think you call it general practice because, of course, you have teams working in most of your general practices with you know, fantastic uh, nurses working as part of your teams and often with other health professionals as well. Uh, in Australia, you know, in, in my practice, we have uh, other uh, medical specialists who come and do sessions uh, in our practice uh, as well, from psychiatry, from some of the internal medicine special specialties as well. So, you know, I think the, the team-based approach is uh, is a positive one, and uh, and you know, allied health professionals. I need think we need to engage more uh, coming in as well. I know you do that here already with groups like dietitians and uh, physiotherapists and others. The the issue about task. Um, substitution you know who does what task I think again it's going to be different in each country depending on the culture of the health kit uh, system in that country and we'll move at different paces in uh, in different countries. I think that what we've seen is that um, well-trained and well-supported uh, nurses uh, can be a great boon in general practice, and there are a number of tasks which have traditionally been carried out by GPs, which nurses, as long as they are trained and supported, can can do very well, and in some in some cases can do it actually even better than uh, than GPs can. Particularly some of the the protocol-based work in chronic disease management, the care of people with diabetes and asthma and so forth, some of the patient education work. Uh, I think uh, some of our nursing colleagues do e exceptionally well as, as well. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, I think there are, there are a number of tasks which other specialists traditionally may have done, which GPs are totally um, able to do and totally competent to do. And I think we've seen that particularly in the strengthening of mental health uh, care uh, delivery through general practice uh, over recent decades with the increased role of GPs in the, uh, the diagnosis and management of depression and anxiety and dementia and a number of other mental health conditions. But I don't think it needs to stop there. I think that what we're seeing with uh, the increased focus on chronic disease management is uh, is how there are many things which are done through hospital clinics in management of diabetes, heart disease, and so forth, which can very easily be done through uh, general practice. And added on top of that is the great specialty skills which we have as GPs in the management of multiple morbidities in our patients, uh, and uh, and you know which often uh, this is often neglected when people go to uh, single discipline. Um, outpatient uh, settings you know they may get their diabetes well managed but their depression and their ongoing treatment of their cancer and uh, their rheumatic um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and their heart disease and what have you may not be treated at all michael thank you very much for your time thanks for the opportunity <laughs> thanks and more from that interview will be appearing on bmj.com next week so keep an eye out now a recent analysis published on bmj.com questions the idea of a population ageing time bomb. Earlier this week, I spoke to one of the authors to find out more. I'm joined on the line now by Jeroen Spiker, who's a senior research fellow at the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. Now, he and his colleagues have been looking at the population ageing time bomb and questioning whether that is a real thing. So, Jaron, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. All right. Um, I'm glad to be uh, able to explain a bit more about the research that uh, we've been doing. Great. So where does this idea of a population time bomb 
come from? Where were the numbers coming from? What's the sort of historical context for it? Well, basically, the the idea came about really um, perhaps well, a few years ago, when and, and when I was writing a uh, a research proposal, um, whereby I my background is I'm a demographer, and I did my PhD uh, about almost ten years ago on. Uh, on mortality and changes in mortality in, in Europe and over, and so what came what came to mind was that um, as time has gone by over the last hundred years, say, um, of course we all know that life expectancy has improved dramatically. Mm. Um, so it was like uh, about 40 years, say, in 1900, and now you know, average person will live um, about about eight, almost 80. But of course, with this these improvements come from that's changed over time so while initially most of the improvements in life expectancy would come from uh, declining infant mortality and maybe even uh, some middle age mortality over the last few decades um, uh, lots of this improvements actually coming from improvements in elderly mortality mm. so elderly themselves are uh, are getting um, uh, older than they were before and so uh, Nevertheless, the what's been what hasn't changed is the way we look at elderly. So, we've been considering elderly, say, aged 65 and over. We we still consider it today, even though we've been doing that for the last 100 years as well. Mm. Especially since the introduction of the of, of the pension system. So, you get to the pension age of 65, and and so uh, then you're sort of considered old. However. Lots of these people uh, now they reach that age and they're still healthy, and so uh, they're still in their in, uh, not not as young as of course they were when they were twenty or thirty, but they're still able to do lots of things. So really, what you're saying is you're trying to sort of quantify um, properly the idea that you know sixty is the new forty, and you know your people who are who are older still are having you know a healthy, economically active. Life and it's it's not that they're necessarily a burden on society. The second they they retire, if we could just talk a little bit about the numbers now and and the assumptions behind the original one and why you think, um, what you think should change there. Yes, well the well the sixties the new forty was maybe a little bit exaggerated. It's more like the sixty eight is the new sixty. It's sort of shall we say um, we, we we try to find look at exact numbers just considering the change in life expectancy among the uh, elder elderly population. So basically, what's behind the numbers is that you you take from life you look at the life expectancy at a particular age and you compare that to the life expectancy at an earlier period of time for that same age mm. and so that's sort of how that new 68 becomes uh, or the 68 is the new 60 because a person aged 68 now has the same years ahead of them as a person aged 60 say uh, i think in the mid 1970s and the other thing is the fact that the demographic of the working age population that's changed as well differences in women working and things like that 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 must have changed as well exactly and that's really our contribution to the discussion while um we all know that that life expectancy has improved so the elderly are a lot more healthy than they were before what also has changed is is the uh, the denominators the working age population is usually calculated as the population of 16 to 64. So from the age, from the time that you're legally able to work until the time that you are uh, le- uh, legally able to, to retire. So, mm-hmm. 
And but of course we all know that this uh, this is a, a very a heterogeneous population, uh, many of whom are actually not in the labor force at, at all. So you have your students at, on the one hand, so the younger population, uh, while they used to start work at 14, 15 or 16, these days many don't start until they're in, in the mid or late 20s. Mm-hmm. What also has changed is that before people were working until they actually were 65, however, uh, especially in, during the 80s, uh, became quite uh, in, initially because of uh, a government incentives for people to retire early. And that, of course, women have started to really uh, participate in the workforce compared to, say, 50 or 60 years ago. So if you would look at the increase in labor and uh, female labor force participation, that's just been imp- impressive. So while they're still not quite at the level that men are working, um, they're uh, they're not lagging a lot behind. So if you're counting all these actual people who are employed, then the actual dependency ratio um, will will de- will will decline. So this is still where uh, lots of gain can be made. That we can, you know, if we would encourage mm-hmm. more women to work, then automatically this dependency ratio that would then decline. So so you've done the maths, and what do you think? Uh, given the assumptions that, you know, are all in the paper there. Um, what do you think the, the the sort of dependent population actually looks like? The dependent population, well, um, it just depends how how we would define uh, the dependent population. Um, you, I think you've got sort of like a fiscal dependency, say, in terms of pensions. Mm-hmm. So you have people that are obtaining their pension from the state. Of course, they are dependent, but of course, there are many people that are actually saved for their own um, retirement. So in that sense, they actually uh, now have paid their own way. So, um, on, and then you have the, the the health part, and what seems to be more relevant in terms of healthcare costs is not so much the chronological age, but how many years they've got left before they die. And mm-hmm. so especially say, um, it's not as important if you're 90 or if you're 60, but if statistically speaking, you would have, or for, um, you'd have like two years left to die, then you could be 90, but it's those two years that, that you've got ahead of you. That's what's really the, the, the big, the cost for, for healthcare. Yeah, I mean, we've known for, for a long time that it's the last few months of life that, that, the majority of the your lifetime healthcare spend is actually done. So, so that's what you've you've tried to look at here. Yeah, but in the whole discussion of population aging, that sort of doesn't really seem to come out in the open. Mm. It's and and um, you know, even I, I'm a demographer and I go to demog- demography conferences, and even there you have some sort of high-rated, um, internationally well-known um, demographers who have their um, their speech at the opening, and they'll even even they will talk about the old age dependency ratio as if it, as as an indicator of of great concern, and it's it's sort of so ingrained in our way of thinking, uh, even as researchers, that that's a sort of this indicator of aging that we should all use. Um, that's also that sort of su- surprises me. So even though we've got, you know, that's why I think um, I, I'm really was really happy that our paper got accepted in the British Medical Journal because we are demographers and we're trying to make 
more interdisciplinary and that others can also learn of uh, of, of what we are doing and which sort of touches upon the medical field. It's just, just to give a general um, a, a background on, on, on population level trends. And one of these is that, yes, we are getting older and yes, um, you know, there will be lots of elderly people, uh, more elderly people in the future, but hang on, these elderly are also getting healthier. So it's sort of a... Le- we have to look at it in more relative terms mm. uh, and, and sort of find other ways of of giving a an objective measure of of this population aging. Jaren Spiker, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. You're welcome. And that article is available online on bmj.com and makes the print cover this week. That's all for this week's podcast. Next week we'll hear from the authors of a new report into subarachnoid hemorrhage. Join us then. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to hear more from our back catalogue, as well as from any of the other journals that we do podcasts for, check them all out on podcast.bmj.com. Thanks for listening.